America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks again for joining us for another edition of the Doctor's Lounge uh, on this two-year anniversary of the show. Our first show was somewhere around June the 12th, June the 14th of 2014. So as we approach the two-year anniversary of our little endeavor here, um, it is uh, fitting that we have probably one of the most significant shows in our history. Um, this is going to be the interview with Mr. Andy Slavitt, the acting administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who is going to be talking to us about MACRA, about the big piece of legislation we've been talking about for the last few weeks on the show. The last two shows of the Doctors' Lounge have been devoted to an analysis of MACRA, and so it is fitting that on our second anniversary we culminate this series of shows with an interview from uh, the, the top of the, the pyramid himself, uh, Mr. Slavitt, the head of Medicare, uh, who is going to give us his feelings on MACRA and also answer a couple of pointed uh, questions. Uh, so this has turned out to be an excellent interview, and, and I have to take my hat off to Mr. Slavitt for, for appearing on the show and spending so much time and, and you know going off script and giving us, I think, some, some candid answers to some tough questions. Uh, so before we get into this, just, again, a brief review, and I've reviewed this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I want to get right to the interview. But uh, back in February, I wrote an open letter to Mr. Slavitt, and he was uh, kind enough and conscientious enough to respond to my open letter within a couple of hours thanks to social media. And uh, we've had a dialogue ever since. I made a trip to Baltimore to visit um, his, with his team face-to-face, and we have had an ongoing dialogue ever since, which culminates uh, in the interview that you're about to hear. And uh, we're very pleased and, uh, and uh, honored uh, to have had him spend so much of his, uh, his time uh, speaking with us. Uh, so uh, we're pleased. This interview is about 37 minutes, and I'll just give you a little overview before we start. This thing gets better the farther you go. Um, you know, Obviously, in a situation like this, you have to approach this interview with pre-planned questions, and we start with some easy pop flies, and, and, and he's going to give you know what is partly a prepared message, of course. Um, that's what we expect. Uh, but the deeper we get into this, the, uh, the, the more pointed the questions get and the more candid the responses get. Uh, and I, I think at the end, hopefully you'll agree that this was a, a rather significant thing for us to, uh, to be able to do. And so uh, we'll get started here right now. Just one more comment is that uh, the, the station breaks are going to be a little bit odd because I obviously was not going to uh, interrupt him mid-sentence to do station breaks. So it, it's 37 minutes of continuous interview. We'll just put some odd-feeling breaks where they need to go uh, at 13 minutes into each quarter hour and then jump right back into it after the station break. So uh, with no further ado, here is the interview with Mr. Slavitt. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we have uh, a very, very special guest today, uh, Mr. Andy Slavitt, the uh, Acting Administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who's going to talk to us today about the proposed macro rule. Uh, Mr. Slavitt, thank you doesn't seem to be enough. Uh, we are honored and uh, delighted to have you with us today. It's great to be in the lounge. 
Indeed. Um, and, yeah, we're just we're, we're so grateful to have you here. So we, we've got a list of questions, so we'll just kind of go into it. And, again, this is, this is your forum to, to say what you want to what you want to tell our listening audience. So um, the first question is, you know, we have a 962-page rule. And so the first question is, uh, you know, what, what's your vision or what's CMS's vision for where the practice of medicine is going and, and how this big rule helps get us there? I don't know that um, really the right place to start is to talk a little bit about uh, the, the Medicare program and the context of what Congress uh, did in the passage of MACRA and what opportunity that gives all of us um, collectively uh, as we think about um, this legislation. Um, and I think we'll get at, hopefully, the other elements to your question, sure. which are the you know how we how this uh, how this you know impacts on how we think about patient care and, and what physicians do every day. Um, the uh, so you know first of all just some basics. Uh, the legislation which passed last year um, you know did away with SCR, uh, which was really 13 years of, um, in many respects, playing games with uh, the payment process to physicians. And in each year, I think physicians around the country and to some extent patients and certainly you know, people who were responsible for these programs would uh, live in fear that um, there was going to be some kind of uh, significant disruption, which would, of course, be a big disruption to patient care. Yes. The other yeah. thing I think was very interesting to note and you don't hear this every day. And I, by the way, I'm, I'm new to Washington, but I know enough to know that getting a vote that has 92 to 8 in the Senate, and I believe it was 392 to 37 in the House, on a big piece of legislation like this doesn't happen very often. So True. I think a fair amount of enthusiasm for both ending SDR and replacing it with something else. Then the question, of course, to all of us is, what is you know, what is the intent of that something else, and I think a very fair question is then what is CMS's kind of role in that process of carrying out that something else? And, you know, I, I think the way I would describe that is um, no, no one really thinks that the payment system uh, that we have today in Medicare and by extension throughout healthcare. Um, is the best one. Um, I think physicians don't feel valued. I don't think they think the system values um, physician work. I think it doesn't do a lot to focus on patient care and outcomes. Um, it leads to a lot of fragmentation. It was also just, quite frankly, developed in, in many stages. So operationally, it just creates a lot more back office work for physicians because it's it's just a comp compilation of many programs put together over many years. So I think the clear intent of this bipartisan legislation is to begin to move the Medicare program in a direction that pays differently uh, and gives, I think, uh, an opportunity um, with a lot of instructions and in a, in a, uh, a piece of legislation um, on what to do, um, and I think that that really 
I think that needs begins in a couple places. One is the patient. Um, you know, we need to recognize as a country uh, where we are as as a as a Medicare program. You know, we have ten thousand people entering Medicare every day. We have um, a huge eighty five plus population, um, significant needs, significant chronic conditions, uh, uh, no small amount of costs. And it's really a large expense for the American taxpayer uh, who every day has to pay into the Medicare program under the hope that the program will be there uh, for them someday. So number one is we have to make sure that um, we implement uh, a payment process that helps um, keep the patient at the center. And I think there's been too much uh, too often that, that um, is distracting from that. Second is that we have to um, implement this in a way that physicians and physician practices uh, feel a sense of control and that that's a program that's relevant. I don't kid myself. I don't think anybody likes to get measured uh, by anything, but I think to the extent that um, there are measurements required for this payment program, that they really center around the things that physicians have some general consensus around are they the right measures, that there's flexibility for physicians to select the kind of measures that are right for their practices. And then third is, I, and I feel like that we need a big commitment to simplify wherever possible uh, because um, there is uh, a lot that's missed between intent and action. And as I mentioned, uh, I'm new to Washington. I've been in the private sector my whole career, and I do believe in the adage that good implementation, uh, broad participation, uh, will help us get to the right answers and continually improve. So there is, I think, an opportunity to take um, what is, in a sense, a lot of work and a lot of programs um, that people face when they take care of Medicare patients every day and simplify them. And if we simplify them, we, give, we will give physicians back time to spend with patients, and if we do that, I think we can, uh, that could maybe perhaps be one of the single biggest thing we can do to get to better patient outcomes. So I can go on and on, but I, I, I'll let you direct me from there, Mike. Okay. Uh, thanks. Um, I guess I'm, I'm still a little bit curious. Is there a vision now that we sort of talked about that? That, that, um, because some of the language in, in macros and, and some of the stuff that I've talked to your team about in the past sort of talks about a, a partnership or, or a two way, um, a paradigm between um, physicians and Medicare where we're doing all this stuff and generating data and there's supposed to be some feedback coming the other way. So um, can you comment on that some? Yeah, I, th I, think, I think that's really important uh, and an interesting question. Um, you know, to the extent that it, it falls to me into the broad topic of um, you know, people are asked to generate a whole lot of data through the course of a number of programs. And um, at least when I go out and talk with physicians and when we go talk with physicians, uh, it's not typically being um, used to help with care with the improvement of a practice or improvement of care patients. So there's a couple of things that I think are, are, are at that. First is, Reducing, simply reducing the inputs, reducing the burden and the amount of reporting 
that physicians have to do. And I think, uh, as you know, and I think as some of your listeners probably know as well, um, we have, um, we're finding ways to take data from uh, multiple sources that physicians may already contribute to uh, or that Medicare already may collect, um, which will reduce the amount that needs to be collected. Secondly, I think there's, there are measures that we've had in the past that we, I, I think we believe and we put in our proposed rule that we no longer even need uh, to, um, to collect at all. So I think there is, uh, there is some reduction. Third, I think we have found areas where people can attest to the uh, um, things that they're uh, doing as opposed to contributing data. And then I think we've had a lot of requests and a lot of the meetings we've had from physicians that they use, that, that if they participate in things like registries where they do get feedback and they do, uh, does help them in their specialty, that we can take that information. So I think that's a whole big, uh, big piece of it. I think where we have to be able to move to uh, is obviously. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. We're going to take a station break here and get right back to Andy Slavitt. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Uh, we continue to play the interview with Mr. Andy Slavitt, uh, Acting uh, Administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, this is the interview regarding MACRA, so right back into it. Uh, ...that goes on, and I think that means better data currency. I don't hold up CMS as a place that physicians necessarily listen to or look to um, for that, but I think we do have the ability through a lot of technical assistance we provide, through creating uh, and convening groups of physicians together, as we've done on a number of occasions, to allow for that uh, to go on. Uh, But, you know, to me, it really is going to start with being much more sensible about what we require of physicians to do and then uh, then, uh, make sure that we are continuing to carve that into things that, that become useful for practice improvement. Is that, that answered your question? 
Yeah, it yeah. does. It does. Great That's answer. Great. Um, we, uh, you know, the part of, uh, of of contemplating this whole thing is is actually a bit of psychology that's kind of, I think, worked a little bit in reverse, strangely enough, because, you know, although the intent is, is clearly to, you know, consolidate and simplify, uh, I think part of what has happened from the doctor's perspective is that now we see all this stuff in one place, right? You know, MIPS used to live over in one corner and meaningful use was over in another corner, uh, and, you know, value-based stuff individual doctors never really saw because it hasn't been implemented that far yet. And now all of this stuff gets rolled up into one big rule, and we all read it and go, oh, my gosh, uh, you know, this is a, a, a massive amount of of obligations, and, and maybe we were doing this a lot of this all along in, in fragments, um, but in some way, it, it, we've, we, it's almost been sort of a reverse effect where I don't think anybody realized how big the total um, regulatory obligation was until it was put all in one body of rules. And I, uh, I, I think that's exactly what's happening. You know, I've been through, um, I've been traveling a bit, meeting with physician groups, large groups, small groups. Uh, getting input the team has as well, as I think you know. Yes. And we do hear that a lot, um, which is that, to, and, and I view that to some extent as a, as a half a step backwards, probably necessary to take a couple steps forward. Because having this sort of patchwork of programs, as you talked about, um, where they overlap, where people's participation levels um, vary, that require duplicate reporting, uh, that's not a world we want to live in. Um, so, yes, Ma- you know, a lot of what MACRA did was say, let's sensibly put it all in one place with one program, with one platform that can be uh, simplified and streamlined. But you're right, it looks like a lot. You know, for people who look at it all in one place, they say, oh, my gosh, 962 pages. And, you know, my it's interesting because when – I mean, look, maybe there's a way to do it in 862 pages, but I don't really think that's the point. I think the, the point to me is, um, you know, I never look at my computer manual. I couldn't tell you how many pages uh, came with my computer manual. Uh, and, and we shouldn't be requiring um, uh, every physician to worry about what's in a 960-page rule. We need to find ways to make it easy for people to know the pieces they need to know I think we've begun that with, um, I think, some very simple and hopefully clear and straightforward um, communication pieces. But more importantly, um, we need to get people to understand that where we want their attention is on patient care and that all of this stuff is going to need to have to work in the background or won't be successful. So if people focus on patient care, doing what they think is right, providing the kind of care that they want, then with some very minimal uh, amount of reporting as to what's going on, we should be able uh, to do the rest of the work. <clears throat> now, there will be choices that physicians will want to make. You know, do they want to join medical homes? Do they want to participate in some other kinds of, uh, of programs in their community? And those really ought to be decisions that should be based upon the local dynamics in the community, uh, what's right for the patients. And so I would say, Mike, it is a good, it's going to take probably uh, some digesting of this rule and some implementation and some simplification in order to get there. Um, and that's, I think, a significant opportunity. Now, having said that, 962 pages, um, our job is to be extremely transparent about everything that's in that rule and to be able to, to walk 
through with any physician or anybody the physician uh, uh, counts on um, what's in that rule. And a lot of that probably um, is, you know, if under circumstance A and region B under with, you know, you have to account for all of that in the rule. And, you know, for people who have that level of interest and curiosity, um, it can seem like a lot, but I think it's, it's very important that people know that uh, we want uh, to be 100% transparent. And then, of course, at this point in time, uh, we're looking for lots and lots of feedback on, on those pieces. So, so let's talk about you know a hypothetical physician then who says, look, I don't have time for 962 pages. I don't have time to know whether I fit in the, you know, the alternate plan or the alternate alternate plan or 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 how who who would you expect that sort of doctor who's just pretty much patient care focused and doesn't have this level of extracurricular interest? Who in their world should they be outsourcing the responsibility for compliance to? Would it be their practice administrator? Would it be their EMR vendor? Uh, should they be spending money on outside consultants that will do this? I mean, in your vision of how this works for the doctor who wants to do what you're saying, which is focus on patient care, where should they be outsourcing this stuff and, and whom should they be holding accountable in their world? Well, it's a great question. And I think the right answer should be any way that they want to. So we need to be making a lot of different options available to them. So first of all, there's been tens of thousands of uh, people, I assume most of them physicians, although we don't know for sure, who participated in webinars. Um, we'll continue to have more. And I think um, you know, for people who just want to have a basic level uh, of understanding, um, you know, I think from there um, what I would say is, uh, the big kinds of decisions that I think physicians are faced with and have been faced with and would be probably in many respects with regard, without regard to MACRA, and this is perhaps an accelerant, is whether or not they want to participate in programs in their communities with other physicians like, in, like accountable care organizations or uh, medical home programs or if their specialty offers it bundled payments um, if they're uh, if they're oncologists, there's there's a, a specific uh, opportunity for uh, a model to work uh, with you know in cancer care uh, or ESRD. So I think we're over time, and I don't think this is an immediate thing, but over the next few years, I suspect more and more of those types of of programs become available in the community from Medicare, uh, from Medicaid. Uh, from commercial health plans, and I think uh, you know there will certainly be no shortage of consultants out trying to sell their wares to help people see their way through those things. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, as I talk to physicians, um, these are the kinds of things that physicians have to assess whether or not they they make sense for their practice. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with physicians that have joined medical home programs, small practices. Uh, rural practice in Arkansas recently, uh, one in Tennessee, uh, one in Oregon, um, that what, it, what was attractive to them about a medical home is that in addition to getting paid for the work they did to see patients, they receive a, uh, a, another payment once per month, which they use to uh, invest in the practice and do coordinated care and so forth. So part of Part of the answer, I think, is just that over time, to make that assessment, and if there's a pro that type of program available, and if there's not, 
then what they'll do is they'll be participating in a, pro- a program which rewards them based upon um, the rubric of MIPS, which I think um, can largely, largely essentially takes into account several programs that exist in the background uh, and that exist already and moves them into the background. The other part of your question, Mike, that you, you asked is what about the role of the MR vendors? And um, I think we have to do is we have to put more burden on technology so we can reduce the burden on the people that are seeing patients and treating patients. So there's a lot of work that's gone into making sure that uh, the technology can accomplish a lot of the functions that, that physicians want, and I think there's work to do there. Indeed. Agreed. Um, so let's move on to a couple of things that um, that are on the list, and, and these are things I know you've been hit with before, in, including when you were uh, testifying on the Hill a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and the big one, I think, is the is indeed the effect on small practices. And so we all go to the, you know, now infamous uh, Table 64 and talk about the fact that, you know, 30% of all physicians, the ones that are in practices of one doctor to nine, um, you know, in the aggregate are going to be, uh, the deck is, is horribly stacked against them by CMS's own numbers. Um, and that, you know, unless you're in a, a, a group of 100 or more doctors, you're more likely to lose than you are to gain. And so the question is, how are, how are those docs, what do you say to those docs to make them feel better? Yep. Yeah, so uh, let's, let's, t- let's take this one on directly. I'm, I'm glad you raised it. Um, so the table you're referring to is uh, what's called an impact table. And what the impact table does uh, is, it, is it requires us to model out what the impact of the law is based upon some assumptions on uh, various things. There's impact tables that we do for regions. There's impacts we do for size of practice, which is the one you're referring to. And uh, I think there is, um, I think, an important caution that people should take out of that table, but also I think some good news as well. Um, and I think the, uh, the table, what the table reflects is the program in the first year, uh, the quality program rolled out in 2014, um, that small physicians um, largely um, didn't report uh, their results in the first year. And so if that were to be the case with MIPS, that would have obviously a detrimental impact on small practices uh, because uh, if you don't report, uh, then you get um, a downward adjustment for that. Now, the good news is that in 2015 and more recently 2016, um, reporting uh, started to improve, and I think the better news is that because this has been such a point of focus uh, for the uh, MIPS law, which begins in 2017, uh, reporting has been made significantly easier, and in fact, uh, much of it's been automated. But the, the warning in it, is that uh, we have to, um, it, you know, I think it's um, tempting perhaps to say this looks like a lot of paperwork or a lot of distraction and I don't want to do it, so I'm not going to report. Uh, but the warning is... You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio, interview with Andy Slavitt. Uh, we will take a station break right here and be back immediately. Thank you. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. Uh, interview with Mr. Andy Slavitt today. A very important interview, very big show. Thank you for staying with us. Uh, please stay for the entire hour and listen to the entire interview. Uh, we continue that right now. Petitioner who may have a spouse, you know, working in the front office, um, you know, they don't have the resources to do the reporting that a 100-physician multi-specialty practice is going to have. Well, exactly, yeah. So it needs to be... You know, look, we're, we, we all are moving to and live in a self-service economy now. I mean, we, we have an economy that allows us to ride Uber, book our reservations through, you know, Airbnb. Uh, you know, there, so we can create um, technology to make things easier for people. We've, we've proven that. Uh, we haven't done it in healthcare um, as well as we need to, but, um, but this is just, uh, not that hard for us, and we've got to do it, and we've got to uh, make it just as easy for a solo practitioner uh, to report to somebody with lots of resources. The second thing I'd say is we've been looking for uh, and are still looking for as many uh, accommodating things that we can do for small physician practices that are to their advantage. And I'll give you one, but I think there are many, and there are potentially more that uh, we haven't thought of yet that we would like comment on. But if a physician does join, for example, a medical home, um, then uh, in most cases, and I'll just qualify it a little bit, in most cases they won't need to um, do any of the reporting that goes into to, uh, MIPS. And if they're part of any quality reporting program, they're not going to need to report uh, on that information. Okay. And uh, so there are a number of things that we've done, uh, as you're well aware, um, we've for the technology incentive program, advancing care information. Um, we've made um, uh, we've made it a much more flexible reporting system where it's easy to get easier to get fifty um, percent of report of uh, reporting automatically just by attesting to some things. 
So I don't want people to be intimidated by having to report things. I think we are going to make the burden on technology to make it easier, uh, but we really do need to make sure that, as the table points out, the small practices uh, do, in fact, feel like they can report. Well, the, the, the second half of the, of the concern on, on that small practice data is that this is not, by its design, something where everyone can get an A and get a bonus. So, you know, you guys have to set a threshold, I think, that, that backs you into those numbers, if I understand it correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Everybody's impression here, when we have these discussions, exactly along the lines that, that we're talking about right now, is that we say, well, maybe there'll be some sort of uber solution for small practices, but the bottom line, I think, is that they're still competing with the large institutions, the 100-plus practices, which will always be able to do a better job. And so the question is, you know, if if we get to a point, you know, where, you know, the, the bell curve runs from, you know, 90% to 100%, um, you know, the 90% score still gets an F because it's graded on a curve. And since this thing has to be res- revenue neutral, as I understand it, you know, the small practices might improve from a 40 to a 90, but if the big practices improve from an 85 to a 99, the small practices are still going to get penalized rather than bonus now, no matter how hard they try. Uh, do I have that wrong somewhere? No, you got it somewhat right, but I want to clarify a couple things. Okay. Uh, first of all, what's interesting is in our data, once physicians report, there is uh, the, the small and solo practices do just as well as larger practices do. So the good news is uh, that uh, indicates that the, that the actual care that's going on, the actual um, things that are supposed to be measured, um, cost, accountability, all of those other things, um, the smaller practices and the, their, their larger medium-sized practices um, do equivalently well. So there's, that's good news. Uh, that it's only a reporting appear, it appears to only be a reporting bias. The second point you raise is is this notion of of um, revenue neutral or this, this sort of bell curve, and that's mostly right, but it's not entirely right um, in a couple ways. Um, first of all, um, and I'll, I'll go through a couple ways. First of all, if somebody participates in an advanced um, care model like a medical home. Um, they get an automatic 5% a lump sum bonus, and that's not zero sum. That's not budget neutral. Um, and that's on top of whatever incentives they may have paid in their model. Secondly, there's a half percent increase to the fee schedule that goes on for the first several years. That's also, I believe, not revenue neutral. That's, that's just an additional payment um, that, that physicians get. Thirdly, um, today, um, with the programs that exist today, there are um, revenue declines possible of up to, I believe it's 9 or 10%. Yeah, that's what I remember. Um, and the MIPS program, if you're in the MIPS program, um, the maximum decline is 4%, and the, minimum, and, the, and, the, and the maximum payout is significantly higher, and it's a it's, it's, it's a complicated formula, but there are, there are some things that Congress built in to allow us to uh, make more winners than losers, if you will. So there's no okay. doubt that there are uh, that, that people who are, uh, by design, 
whose performance across um, the categories measured by MIPS, uh, the people at the bottom of that will, will be at the bottom of the curve and will have a, a negative revenue adjustment. But um, it's not necessarily the case that that is a fate that people have. And B, uh, fortunately, um, we believe small practices should have just as much opportunity um, as, as the medium and larger ones. And I have to tell you, there are a lot of things that are outside of what all the things we're talking about today that make life difficult for small and rural practices. Um, there, there are a broader set of challenges and a broader set of things that we have to work on and that we do work on. Uh, so this, isn't, this doesn't solve that problem, but what we have to do with this is make it um, a good playing field and one where everybody can be successful. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, let me give you uh, just one last question because we're running short on time. The other big area of concern amongst the physicians I talk to is the sort of this uh, ONC surveillance of EMRs and sort of this backdoor monitoring uh, concept uh, that invokes the need for, um, you know, federal agencies to sort of keep their finger on the pulse of what's happening inside everybody's EMR database. And, you know, a lot of people are, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree with this, but this is what's out there is people are invoking Fourth Amendment issues. They're invoking, you know, uh, ethical right to patients' privacy issues. Um, so what have you heard about that, and, and, and what's the position uh, or the justification for this sort of, uh, you know, backdoor connectivity to everybody's EMR database? Yeah. No, I, I, this, is a, this is an issue that I'm starting to hear uh, about uh, from physicians and am, uh, you know, frankly learning more. You know, I think the ONC, uh, first of all, it, uh, I, what I'm not going to do is sit here and say, I'm CMS, they're ONC, that's Congress, we're the administration. There, there's no mileage in that. And, you know, there's one program. Our job is to make it work um, and to make it make sense for people. So, um, you know, obviously, um, the, the job of the ONC, the, the Office of the National Coordinator, is to set an agenda where there are interop interoperable promotion of technology. And, you know, they have been asked, um, in, by and large and very loudly, by the physician community and by the patient community to make sure that people have technology that does what it's supposed to do, that when a patient travels between offices, the data can go with them, that the technology does the work that we've talked about today and other work so that the burden doesn't fall on uh, the, uh, the, the patient and the physician particularly to do that work. Um, and their, um, uh, so, you know, they're uh, in, the, in the process of that, I do believe um, that they collect uh, certain information uh, that is just sort of, I guess it's resident inside uh, the medical record, um, and I think the question that's being raised, that you're raising, I think is an important one, because the trust uh, that exists between a patient and a physician when dealing with their medical situation is something that obviously is vital, and there's been a lot of, like, a lot of um of work done and a lot of civil rights work done and a lot of uh, other work done to ensure that that remains the case. 
So. Well, yeah, we get a little confused by these attestation things because, you know, we've all heard of, and we've talked about interoperability we've, you right. know, and data blocking and all that, but that's mostly been something that the vendors have been doing. And yet, you know, we as physicians are being asked to attest, uh, you know, we don't know what the level of legal binding is there, but it's, it's still scary in a way sure. um, that, that we're not doing this. And I'm reading this and going, well, you know, individual doctors and independent physician practices have never data blocked. Right. And I'm just curious, like, where's that coming from? Right. No, I, I agree. Look, and that's something we do want input into. Obviously, what we're trying to do is tell the technology community, you have to meet a set of needs for these physicians um, in order for you to be successful as a technology firm. So um, that's, a, that's the dynamic that we're setting up. I don't think, uh, I think the, the uh, point you're making and the point that we're hearing is why put the pressure on the physician um, to, for, the, for, the technology, for the, um, technology to do its job? Um, how is the physician to know? I think that's a good area for us to take input. You know, and I should say that, you know, th- this is a law that, um, uh, and I probably should have uh, should have started with this. You know, we have, we have done and continue to do hundreds of meetings with physicians to get input into this law because while Congress laid out a blueprint, um, you know, we have our job has been to answer uh, a number of questions to get it completed. Our approach for that is to do that with a massive amount of in-person input from, you know, practicing physicians. We have um, we've made a, I think, a pretty extraordinary effort to get outside of Washington and meet with physicians in their own um, um, kind of locations who are actually practicing medicine. We have a number of our our clinical team here, uh, you know, continue who continue to practice, uh, and you've met some of them. Yes, indeed. You know, and so. We uh, don't believe, I think this is maybe one of the important things to close on, we don't believe we have any monopoly on all the answers on how to make this work best. And I would venture to say even with all of your input, um, as we go through year one, we will learn a lot. And it will take uh, uh, continuous continuous effort to make the program simpler, make it work better for physicians and patients, and we have to stay very close to it. And, you know, if there is a gap between how these things these laws, these rules get written up, and what happens in the, for the practice of medicine, then, you know, shame on all of us. Shame on us for being too far away from it. And, um, you know, and I want... You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge, interview with Mr. Andy Slavitt, uh, Chief Administrator uh, for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, We have several minutes left of the interview, which we will continue in the fourth segment. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for sticking with us all the way through segment four and the conclusion of the interview with Andrew Slavitt, the head administrator, uh, acting administrator for Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Here we go. We uh, don't believe, I think this is maybe one of the important things to close on, we don't believe we have any monopoly on all the answers on how to make this work best. And I would venture to say, even with all of your input, um, as we go through year one, we will learn a lot. And it will take uh, uh, continuous, continuous effort to make the program simpler, make it work better for physicians and patients, and we have to stay very close to it. And, you know, if there is a gap between how these things, these laws, these rules get written up and what happens in the, for the practice of medicine, then, you know, shame on all of us. Shame on us for being too far away from it. And, um, you know, and I want to say that, you know, the reverse should be true. Um, you all should be able to feel like um, you have the ability to connect and control um, what comes out of processes like these. Um, and so if we do our jobs well, yes, there's going to be tough questions in here. You know, Congress, um, uh, you know, can't snap its fingers and make patient care um, uh, better, make the payment systems better. Uh, it's way too complex. There's way too many local communities, uh, various uh, needs, different size practices. Uh, and so the commitment to getting this right is going to have to get done um, really by implementing this in a very thoughtful way uh, on questions like this. And not all the questions have easy answers, uh, but I'm, I'm actually um, buoyed since I've been here that the spirit of the people here and of the physicians we interact with are people, by and large, want to get it right. Well, it's, uh, it, it's an admirable and a, and, a, and a tough job that you've agreed to take on, Mr. Slavitt, and we sure do appreciate your time uh, in the doctor's lounge, and uh, hopefully the dialogue between us will continue. And that pretty much concludes uh, the interview. The rest is kind of thank yous and, and the rest the usual sort of thing. So um, so, so concludes the interview uh, with Andy Slavitt, the Acting Administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I think a, a most interesting interview. I, th- I think a lot of uh, very interesting and important points have, uh, have come out of that uh, interview. Um, so I'll just kind of share with you my thoughts here. We've got about 10 minutes left, so um, I will use my position behind this microphone to sort of give you my thoughts. Uh, please feel free to, to listen to this repeatedly and disagree with me and, and, uh, and share your, uh, your disagreements, and we'll, we'll try to come up with a body of reasoning um, to make the most out of uh, what we've learned from Mr. Slavitt. Um, I think the first thing 
that we need to recognize here um, is is just a, an admiration for the for the the guts and the um, uh, and the uh, and the class act. I think that Mr. Slavin is. Uh, you know, I, I think this has got to be one of the most. Uh, difficult and challenging jobs that one could possibly take on. And I, I doubt that there was any uh, compelling reason for him to even take this job. I mean, remember that he came in to CMS to save healthcare.gov. And we remember what a disaster that was, I think, from 2013. And uh, he went from that very difficult job to another very difficult job, which is this one, which is the idea of being the point man, to be the face of this very controversial proposed rule and to be the face of that rule in an era when uh, physician involvement uh, in the in the public policy arena is at an all-time high thankfully inappropriately uh, where social media can bring people together to speak with a stronger voice both for and against a rule like this uh, and I, I think you have to recognize, I, I have to say and that I, I have a great personal admiration for the man. I think this was a uh, – this listening tour that he is doing, um, that the team is doing, um, has got to be difficult. Uh, you know, it would be easy for, you know, an administrator, a bureaucrat, if you will, to sort of, you know, wall themselves up behind um, the beltway and, and behind the marbled buildings of Washington, D.C. and just say, I'm not going to listen to any of this. We'll put a comment period out just as a polite gesture, uh, but in the end, not really bother with it. Um, obviously, what CMS actually does with all of the comments that they're getting, some 400 so far, and we're nowhere near the deadline, um, what they do with those comments remains to be seen, of course. But so far, so good. I mean, I don't think that you can fault the, the, at least their efforts. You can't fault the process. Obviously, the result uh, is a separate issue. So let's just go through what I consider to be the highlights of the interview. He started off talking about the bipartisan nature of the passage of MACRA. And at a superficial level, that's absolutely true. It passed by an overwhelming vote in both the House and the Senate and was, of course, signed by the president. So uh, he's right. It was very bipartisan. Uh, I think what he skipped over was why it was so bipartisan. And I don't think that it was an endorsement of every single page of the rule. I think this was a situation where as soon as you get in front of a congressman and say, this is a bill that repeals SGR, you get the vote. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the ideas are. I also realize this was a climate where Congress was totally sick and tired of dealing with SGR every year, at least if not more often. Uh, it was sucking a huge amount of their already rather limited capability to legislate. And, uh, and so they wanted this off of their backs faster than you can possibly imagine. Uh, so much that I don't think they even cared what was in the rest of the bill. So, you know, the bipartisan support for this was probably really, and this is conjecture on my part, but I think it was limited to the idea of getting rid of SGR and replacing it with something. Um, what I don't think anybody counted on, including most of organized medicine who signed on to MACRA, was that uh, there, there was a Trojan horse going on here, and the payload of the Trojan horse was, you know, the outside of the Trojan horse was repeal SGR, so everybody buys into that. The payload of the Trojan horse is all of this MIPS and rules-making and alternative payment methods and all this sort of thing. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, where the, the, the bipartisan support really was centered on, you know, the outside of the Trojan horse, the repeal of SGR, rather than what was inside, you know, pages 2 through 200, uh, so to speak. Um, but, uh, you know, that having been said, um, I think there's some other observations that are worthwhile. I think throughout this interview, 
I think Mr. Slavitt was trying to emphasize that, that people aren't supposed to stay with MIPS forever uh, and that they do want to move folks into the alternative payment models. Now, I personally don't like that idea, but I think that's where he was going with this. Uh, which is to say, well, if you know, if MIPS is so bad, you know, it, it, the world, your world, especially as a small practice doctor, that your world's going to get a whole lot better if you move into one of these alternative payment models or you join a large group. Um, but to do, you you have to, in their eyes, if you're going to survive, you're going to have to change the nature of your practice because he did admit twice uh, that the payment formula under MIPS, under the Meriden-based payment system, right, that has these four components to it that gives you this score from zero to 100, that no matter how well the small practices do, they're not going to keep up with what the bigger practices are able to do. And I think most of the time they're going to end up on the short end of that and, and that the the math behind the scoring really does force that to happen. There's no way on this test that everybody can get an A. It has to be a bell curve. So the number of Fs has to equal the number of As. The number of Bs has to equal the number of Ds, and most people get Cs, like a standard standard bell curve. And so we did sort of get that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that declaration, and, and I think that's that's a very interesting thing. He kept going back to the fact that doctors need to make choices, and I think the choices he was hinting at was either uh, join a medical home or join an accountable care organization or, or something uh, similar uh, along those lines. Uh, another sort of theme that popped up at least twice, I think, during uh, his comments um, was the fact that uh, he at least is interested in holding the EMR vendors more accountable for what goes on. And I, I think when we raise the idea of, of making a lot of the quality reporting be transparent or be invisible to the doctor who's taking care of patients, that it all happens in the background, uh, I think he was interested in that. And, and that, that also came up in the context of when I asked, you know, who should a physician, especially a small practice physician, who should that doctor turn to to be sure that he or she can be compliant with the law? Uh, and although his answer was initially, you know, anything any way that you possibly can. He also kind of, uh, you know, broke out the EMR vendor as someone who probably needs to be more responsible for building systems that allow this quality monitoring to occur in the background than we currently have available. And as a part of this talk, he, he gave a lot of uh, recognition to some of the concepts that, that uh, I guess MIPS uh, aspires to do or macro aspires to do, you know, a patient-centered payment process, elimination of distractions. No one likes to get measured. Uh, we'd like to reduce the burden of reporting. Uh, and, you know, it's there are some places that you can point to in this law that, that seem to approach that a little, uh, that, that the number of requirements has been reduced from nine to six and that this is a not an all-or-nothing score, you know, an all-or-nothing situation that you get a score and according to the score, it's a you know, it, it's a graduated scale in terms of how much you're uh, penalized or how much um, that uh, you're rewarded. Uh, I also found it uh, interesting uh, some of the comments um, that he made regarding uh, some of this uh, CMS expansion of power concept. Uh, and that we, um, I, I raised or shared with him the concerns that many of you have made clear to me uh, that uh, that this this ability of CMS that the rule proposes, this ability of CMS to be able to get backdoor access to your electronic medical records, uh, including the database itself, the patient database itself, as opposed to the EMR 
application itself um, is somehow legal and proper, and they even claim in the rule that they went to the Office of Civil Rights and said, hey, can we do this under HIPAA? The Office of Civil Rights says, of course you can. And so they say, yes, we're going to do this again in the, in the name of quality monitoring. And I think it's pretty clear that those – the desire to have those abilities uh, has no moral or ethical basis. Um, it certainly has no role in quality monitoring, and I think we all pretty quickly recognize that for what it's worth. And when I presented that to him, I think he acknowledged that. I think he said, look, we are hearing a lot about people's objections to that. Uh, I raised the question of the attestations, right? When you, you know, the advancing clinical information part of this, advancing care information, I should say, uh, part of the MIPS score requires that you attest to that you're not going to data block and all this kind of stuff. And I said, well, doctors don't data block. Who data blocks? You know, big institutions data block, large vendors data block, large hospitals data block. Doctors don't data block. And I think he conceded that point as well. So I think it is fair uh, as a an expectation that when this final rule comes out, that there should be an elimination of that, and and anything short of elimination of that, I think is going to be very disappointing, and I think they're going to hear about that loud and clear if they fail to deliver. Uh, so we're down to the end of the segment here. We've got about thirty seconds left. Uh, you know, just a couple of comments. I, you know, I'm I'm very grateful uh, to Mr. Slavitt and his team uh, at CMS for granting us the interview. Um, I, I again have great admiration for the man and his his candor and his uh, courage to come out and sort of face uh, all of the controversy that goes along with this. And certainly, the interview has given us uh, a lot of material to talk about for many weeks to come. Thanks again for your time. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. You have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.